It is the middle ground between light and shadow, between science and superstition, and it lies between the pit of man's fears and the summit of his knowledge. This is Time Enough Podcast. This is Time Enough Podcast, where we look into the twilight zone and beyond. This is Matt here with me today is John Champion from the Mission Log Podcast. Hi, John. How are you? And uh, hey, I'm glad that you took a gig that I had thought about for a long time and never did anything with. (laughs) Yeah. You know, this is perfect. um, Well, you know, I have already enticing me on my shelf over there, uh, the starting to do this i had to do more research i got you know night gallery tales from dark side and ray bradbury theater i'm like oh i gotta get the i gotta, I gotta get through this first though so yeah so which good. it's yeah. still still fun uh today's yeah. episode i think was actually pretty new to me like i had not seen the 16 millimeter shrine before i mean i might have been like four years old and saw it in uhf or something but uh it's not one that i'd actually come across so um, oh, good, good. I, and I hadn't, I, like, I knew the story, but I hadn't watched it with intent in a long time. And, you know, this is one of the things that when you told me about this show, and you did a terrible thing, which is you, you told me to pick an episode or two, and I just started looking at the list, and I was like, damn it, they're all good, and I want to watch all of them. So <laughs> I just went through and started watching every show. Um but this one I specifically wanted to do for a number of reasons, which which we'll get into. Radio, but um, <clears throat> excuse me. So I am doing a bit of your your gig here, as I said, and uh, doing some trivia because you know the we got the changing cast and crew every week. And this yeah. one we have uh, Ida Lupino. She acted plenty with appearances in The Adventures of Sherlock Holmes, High Sierra, and The Sea Wolf, supplying a fine resume. Perhaps more importantly, she was a prominent female director in the male-dominated studio system. She directed The Hitchhiker, which was the first film noir directed by a woman, as well as Outrage, a film that tackled the subject of rape in 1950. This is her only on-screen appearance in The Twilight Zone, but she will return to direct The Masks. If you look up a TV character actor in the dictionary, you'll likely find a photo of Martin Balsam. He appeared in the shows from Father Knows Best to The Man from Uncle and returns to the Twilight Zone for the new exhibit. You may also remember him from the protozone Desilu Westington playhouse, The Time Element. This episode has at least a few shades of Sunset Boulevard and the deepest cut may be the music of Franz Waxman. He scored that iconic film and it's his music being used here. Mitchell Lyson directed this episode. He helmed quite a few screwball comedies back in the day with uh, Death Takes a Holiday sticking out as a standout. But not a standout like I love it, a standout as in like I would see it on every supermarket shelf and, uh, you know, in the 90s as one of those like $5 VHSs. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah. Hey, uh, don't forget Martin Balsam. He was the first uh, Dr. Rudy Wells on uh, Six Million Dollar Man for their pilot. Might have been their second pilot, but I, I think it was the first pilot film. 
Yeah, well, as you know, sometimes there's which ones, which ones do I choose exactly here? So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and there are so many Rudy Wells to choose from, too. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. That, that was the real android of the show, I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> and is android the right term? Huh? That's neither here nor there. Cyborg. So, Cyborg. Yes, there we yeah, go. There Thank we go. you. Uh, so, John, you could do this in any way you feel fit. Um, I've had, you know, Serling impressions all the way to Southern Madman. So uh, I would like for you to do your read of the prologue of this episode. All right, here we go. Picture of a woman looking at a picture. Movie great of another time, once brilliant star and a firmament that no longer is part of the sky, eclipsed by the movement of earth and time, by Regine Trenton, whose world is a projection room, whose dreams are made out of celluloid, Barbara Jean Trenton, struck down by hit-and-run years and lying on the unhappy pavement, trying desperately to get the license number of fleeting fame. All right. So, yeah, this is... Um... I guess I'll start by saying I just by chance and actually the chance was I was on the train like choosing a book and I was thinking of reading something metaphysical and the train bumped and it hit on a book. So I was like, I'll just read that. Fate just decided. And I, I just finished. Uh, are you familiar? This is uh, Gary Christ's book, The Mirage Factory. I do not know that book. No, quite, quite interesting. It's about the um, like the boom of Los Angeles focusing on William Mulholland and uh, you know, all the way up to the, the dam break disaster uh, follows D.W. Griffith basically starting Hollywood and not being able you know, make a movie later on. And um, mm. uh, Amy Semple uh, McPherson, who was the oh, wow. revivalist who had a strange yeah. disappearance. So, you know, coming in and then watching this, I was like, wow, the 30s is always like, you know, I just was living the teens, you know, reading the book. So the 30s is already late in the game with those talkies. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Wow. Uh, by the way, somebody needs to make a movie. I, I think there is a movie about Amy Semple McPherson, but I think that needs to be a new take on that because that's a fascinating story on its own. But anyway, I digress. Well, yeah, I, I haven't spent much time in California, so that was like a completely new story to me. I'd heard a little bit of the Mulholland story, heard a lot of the Griffith story. I've, I've even watched those three-hour films before. So, <laughs> Oh, very cool. Nice. But uh, yeah, this one we have um, Barbara Jean Trenton, another of those three name people, um, you know, who's just living in her darkened room now watching movies, which I don't know, it doesn't seem like the worst fate ever. <laughs> no, I mean, look, she's got a nice home, clearly, and she was this huge star, but what she's lacking in is a, uh, a supportive social network. You know, I, I think there's a, there's a kind of isolation that comes with fame anyway. And then, um, famously the uh the the hollywood star system at the time would you know chew people up spit them out once you're done with them all those quote-unquote friends that you had are gone because they've moved on to the next project so she's making do the best she can which is in this beautiful old home and hanging out watching classic movies that uh, she happened to be the star of or co-star but in 1960 or 59 i guess it was filmed in 59 but I guess that was a pretty out there weird thing to do, but we all do it now. <laughs> no, we do. I, I, I mean, I don't even know if it was that weird of a thing then. I mean, it, it's debatable, you know, uh, obviously uh, a life well lived is hopefully one that has uh, friends and family and others to rely on and a, and a sense of the people around you. Um, but there's also something to be said for creating the life that you want. 
um, and and making do with the best of what you have. Um, we do tend to well, we were all forced to con- to cocoon last year, <laughs> you know, <laughs> uh, stay indoors and binge watch, and uh, so that that's not that out of the ordinary. Um, but I would have to imagine that even then, you know, in in the fifties, certainly people were sounding the alarm of, oh look, people are staying inside watching TV now and not getting out, or people would go to the movies and hang out and lose themselves in the adventure on screen and and forget the real world for a couple hours. Yeah, like for me, it's kind of weird. Um, before about nine or ten p.m., I'm always going to read a book. After mm-hmm. nine or ten p.m., I'm not going to read a book and watch something. So mm-hmm. it's pretty rare that I watch something during the day. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. Which I mean, I don't know. Maybe that's a good balance. Um, a lot of the things here. About twenty years ago, I had a friend. She was a, um, a film historian, just you know, very obsessed with Carol Lombard. So you'd hang out her place and. She'd have the Art Deco stuff, and you know the the gin was in the the crystal decanters and stuff. So I, yeah. I could I kind of yeah. feel like that was the social scene that uh, Miss Trenton is is looking for here. <laughs> sure, sure, yeah. Like I said, I I, I do respect that at, at at some level. It's just like create the world around you that you want to live in, you know. So she wants to live with this sense of elegance, even if it's maybe starting to fade and crack a bit. Uh, okay, more power to her. And um, she's got sort of that third, well, as she should, has sort of that 30s cosmopolitan accent where it's like a, a Atlantic coaster, like vaguely trying to do a British accent thing. Yes, the, the Mid-Atlantic, uh, which um, uh, I, I think they even called it out in the, uh, uh, the series that was on Netflix, Hollywood, uh, where they showed a group of young actor hopefuls taking classes at the studio. You know, what is the accent? It's mid-Atlantic. And who lives in the mid-Atlantic? Nobody. <laughs> you know? uh, because you're creating a neutral accent um, that anybody, whether it's a, a European audience or an American audience, can understand. And some people made it their own. Some people shifted a little bit, famously like Catherine Hepburn, Cary Grant. Uh, these are people who had and, and um, typified that accent. Look, as somebody from Birmingham, Alabama, I've been told that I have an accent that doesn't belong. So I, I know what that feels like. Yeah, being out of the States, I've, like, I think I've mostly flattened my accent. I never really had much of a Southern twang to begin with, but yeah. sometimes I'll just uh, find myself like suddenly, suddenly, wow, what's that? <laughs> like, I mean, <laughs> like, you usually get a weird look or two from that sort of thing. Um, right. The other thing with her accent is my grandmother was born in 1912 and had this same accent. So uh, actually hers was very much the uh, Margaret Dumont sound. So (laughs) very cool. Maybe slightly less annoyed sounding, but uh... (laughs) my um, uh, my grandparents on my father's side were both born in rural Georgia. And let me tell you, they had distinctively southern accents. (laughs) I'm, I'm the oddball for sure. But um, I was thinking also, you know, I just said I read the book with the, the teens and the 20s, the silent film period, um, with the early sound films being pretty terrible. I mean, not terrible, but you couldn't, you know, you had to hide the microphone and you couldn't move the camera, any of that sort of thing. So mm-hmm. I'm wondering what, what exactly is the golden age of film? So uh, having yeah. already made. Oh, go ahead. Oh, no, I mean, that, that's such a good question. And, and, and honestly, I think that every age 
has its own sort of mini golden age. You know, the nice thing about the 1930s is that there are a lot of movies being made. The bad thing about the 1930s is that there were also a lot of bad films being made in and among that. So go back a generation prior and you, you had the three greats, you, you know, uh, uh, Chaplin, Lloyd and Keaton, who were given free reign to create their own projects, star in their own projects. So I think there was a lot more creativity then but in the rise of the studio system, the, the 1930s was a golden age because it, it was turning from an art into an industry. And even though you had that drive for, um, for commercial success, there was so much being created that, you know, even up into the early 40s, a, a masterpiece was bound to slip through the cracks. You know, a movie like Casablanca, which is purely studio driven it, it is just literally put everybody to work go go get a writer go get a director go get actors go make a movie but genius can come from it yeah i was i was going to answer the question myself with something slightly more specific uh having oh, already please, mentioned please. sorry about that oh no problem at all i was just going to say uh having already mentioned margaret dumont for me, the uh, absolute golden age for studio Hollywood would be from about the time Horse Feathers came out to about <laughs> the time Duck Soup Duck Soup came out. Ah, the, the reason it, for that it's being just that, that. It just, <laughs> well, that's that's a, I think that's a two or three year period. Yeah, Monkey yeah. Business was made in between. Um, Animal Crackers is great; it's just really flat looking. But I feel like a Duck Soup is right where the haze code kicks in. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so I, I uh, was yeah. looking online a few days ago at all these um, pre haze code films, and yeah. You know that by that time there was about a two-year period where they had the camera moving again and you know yeah. they could actually have like i mean to the modern eye it's not sex and violence but of course at the time it was uh quite ri sure. uh, riveting in that sense of the word i suppose <laughs> yeah yeah i and and you know for for good reason the uh, obviously the Hayes code was just a, a huge blight on the arts, you know, and, and well, the film industry specifically, but it, it was a terrible thing. But I really enjoy seeing like, uh, I, I watched the original uh, Mystery at the Wax Museum not that long ago. That's the movie that, um, you know, Vincent Price later remade. And it was cool because it was right before the Hayes Code, but they went all out and it was two strip color. Um, there was, you know, there were gruesome effects. Uh, there wasn't, sex per se but there was sexiness in there and um you know one of the things that changed when they did the remake in the whatever it was late 50s early 60s like one of the lead characters in the original was a drug addict and like that just completely gets cut <laughs> later yeah. on it's like oh they they may have had one too many drinks <laughs> you know but but that that period right before the haze code kicks in yeah they they, they just went all out I mean, you say pre haze code, and the first thing that comes to my mind is just some, you know, shoddy apartment where where the the couple married or not, you know, do share the same bed. So, <laughs> oh yeah, sure, sure, because yeah. that that went out the window for for quite a while. So, <laughs> yep, indeed. I was thinking of the closest I come to living in my own sixty millimeter shrine, and uh, I, I guess it would be those those late night trowels through the old photo files on my computer. I do have the good or bad thing that um being very far from my parents house i can't see many old photos i can go back to about 2004 and before that anything's real spotty so um yeah 
which has let my memory become interest an interesting thing, I suppose. But uh, <laughs> yeah, you know, so it, you know, I, I I sort of have found that in the last few years, I take a lot of pictures, but I don't actually review them that much. And you know, my I think my my digital photo library co probably goes back twenty years. Um, but my, um, or, or more than that, even, yeah, because I, I had a digital camera pretty early on, like when they first came out. Um, but physical photos are still back in my parents' house. But that digital file, I rarely ever actually review. I rarely actually go back and maybe with some intention, like, oh, I need to find a picture of so-and-so, so I'll grab it. But yeah, it's I, I don't really escape that way. Yeah. yeah, I haven't been shooting many photos recently. Um, I I actually it might be my my creative energies are on podcasting, and I forgot about photos. But uh, <laughs> since I was posting them for my family and things on Facebook, I have the benefit that my files are labeled. So it's like here is the trip to blah blah blah. So uh, that yeah. helps a lot. It's not just at random. I mean, there is a yeah. little bit of that, but uh, you know, when the one that says astral photography, I'm not quite sure what's in there. So. <laughs> <laughs> it just turned out to be you know art photos right but <laughs> yes, yeah, there you go um i don't know i guess if you're if you're taking a trip through your past how what is your your mo for that man that that's really tough because i i, I think a little bit about um you know it's funny it came up in the mission log discord not that long ago uh the hbo show dream on and i think my brain sort of works like martin tupper in that show where something happens now, but it connects to either something from the past or worse, a pop culture moment from the past that didn't actually involve me, <laughs> you know? <laughs> so so that, that that's a weird thing where our brains work that way and, and you sort of start to merge what was real life and what was just something you saw or read or experienced, you know, second or third hand. Um, so to to find that, escape you know it, it's a, a double-edged sword that things happen like um like on facebook you get that pop-up that says like here's what you were doing 10 years ago and i, I honestly don't want to see that most of the time <laughs> you know like it, it, it sort of takes you out of your life for a moment and i i didn't ask for that particular memory you know that <laughs> weird with your phone coming and saying like you have a new memory i'm like what does that even mean right yeah yeah <laughs> how, how dare you tell me that i have a new memory you know um although the the phone itself is better at it than facebook is maybe it's just because i have fewer photos in the phone at any given moment so there's less to draw from <laughs> you know that could be it yeah but it's like i don't want to know that was 10 years ago I fe that feels like last month <laughs> yeah 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 but i i think i i tend to work with such free association that it it's really strange. I'll find myself just in a conversation that I, I this happened over Thanksgiving. You know, I, I was at uh, at dinner with some friends, and uh, some people who I, I didn't know were at the table, and just the free association of uh, you know we went from politics to then I was describing something reminded me of being at a you know, city concert in Birmingham, again, like 20 years ago or something, and just, uh, and having a very visceral feel of like, that's what it looked like, that's what it sounded like, that's what I ate, because uh, I have very strong food memories. Anybody who listens to Mission Log knows that, but those are the kinds of things that take me back. You know, I, I can taste something or smell something or, or get a hint of that and then immediately think back to that 
location and and you know the people who were there and what the the feelings like uh feelings were like around that yeah i think they say uh scent is like the sense most tied to memory mm -hmm. yeah although i haven't yeah, i've been told that though i haven't yeah <laughs> Well, for, for me, it is. And what, what's really, I mean, it's kind of cool when you smell something that you can definitely associate and, and you go like, you know, I walk into my favorite restaurant. I know what it smells like on the outside because all the smoke and stuff is venting from that. And I know like, okay, that's what this place smells like. Therefore, memories, times with friends, meals that I've had are all associated with that. What's really frustrating is when you smell something that is a very strong sense memory, but you can't place the memory. <laughs> yeah. You just, you smell it and you go, ooh, that, that's powerful, that's profound, that reminds me of something, and then I will spend all night trying to remember what it was. <laughs> I've got, um, my, I, my annoyance is uh, I get off at, one of the train stations I get off at night is like right next to a Korean barbecue place, but I'm always going home, so I rarely get to eat the Korean barbecue. <laughs> <laughs> Oof, yeah that's rough that's rough i want to hit a couple other moments in the episode i guess that you know well with the twist at the end i guess we should wait to get to but um her actually meeting her part of her old social circle is a pretty notable yeah. scene as he's yeah. aged 30 years and i don't know she's she's slamming martinis and watching movies he's in what he's in charge of supermarkets in illinois that that sounds yeah, like he a, owns, owns a string of uh grocery stores and in the midwest yeah um which and honestly, he, he's a very uh, dapper and sophisticated man, um, and he's aged well in that 30 years. And, and quite frankly, so has she. Um, uh, Ida Lupino in 1959 was beautiful, um, and she was about 50, a little over 50 when they made this episode, um, which I think in 2021 doesn't sound old, but then we're we're you know, painting with a broad metaphoric brush here. Um, and we're also talking about a very dated studio system that, like I said, would chew people up and spit them out as soon as uh, the system was done with them. So you could be all but retired at 30, you know. Yeah. Um, but yeah, her, her old co-star coming in for a visit, uh, it's it's a very sweet scene. Like, like he, he has this... Um, uh, uh jerry is the the character jerry herndon um he, he has this uh this kindness and this sympathy toward her that i know that i feel and i and i hope this episode uh elicits from the audience as well but he's he's really trying hard and just saying like yeah those were good times but that was more than 20 years ago 30 years ago yeah I mean, in a way, she is kind of, you know, well, in, in the Buddhist sense of the word, she's very much creating her own suffering. I mean, she's even being yeah. offered jobs, which she's having a screaming fit about. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I, I, again, I don't, I, I'm sure that that has happened before. I'm sure it happens now, but I think it probably happens less often because I can tell you actors want to act. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they, they, they want to perform, they want to be working. And it is very rare that somebody would turn down a role out of that kind of vanity, you know, because you, you could take that role as the mother and really make it something. And, and to Ida Lupino's credit, I mean, you said it, she worked as a director throughout her career and continued to act. I think her last acting credit was like in 1979 or something. So she continued to work quite a bit. Yeah, we are looking at um, 
Barbara's neurosis here and, and not yeah. Ida's, obviously. Yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, because I'm like, well, she's got a lot going for her here. So, you know, yeah. um, I almost wondered if they should have, I don't know, maybe gone a little wackier with the age makeup or even had like mm -hmm. two. Would it would it this be a stronger or weaker episode if the 50 year old um, Barbara was relatively, you know, downtrodden looking? Yeah, see, that's a tough thing. Um, I, I, I think, I think this episode does such a good job of playing with your sympathies in that you feel bad for her, but she's also kind of a terror, <laughs> you know. <laughs> right. So, so you you have to constantly be wondering, like, uh, okay, does my heart break for her, or is she just being terrible to everybody around her? So we need to suspend a bit of our sympathy, and it's like. If she was too old and run down, then we might feel too strongly one way. If she was too kind of young and fresh and had it all together, then we might feel another way too strongly. And I guess the problem in producing a show like this is, okay, you have somebody like Ida Lupino, you don't want to hide her in a ton of makeup, and you don't want to recast when you don't really have to. So just like go with the power of the performer that you've got and let her do her thing and let the audience suspend their disbelief a little bit like oh, okay on screen that was her 25 plus years ago but in the room this is her now and even if she's 50 51 years old now we can think that she has been suffering with this for 20 years this feeling of being detached from the industry and detached from her quote-unquote friends who may or may not be the best for her. Yeah, my specific note on it was uh, basically if we if we remove the psychotic narcissistic qualities, I'm probably on Barbara Jean's side. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, th that is a major uh, block in the way um, of yeah. that. I, um, she is she is her own worst enemy. I mean, there, there, there's no question about it because she's got like uh, Mr. Weiss, uh, Martin Balsam's character is very sympathetic and he's there to help and he cares about her and even at the studio um like just yeah look here, here's this opportunity to get back to work just take it you know they, they are actually working for her they are actually pulling for her but she's the one who set up sets up those blocks yes of course the episode ends with her finally getting to have her party with all of her old friends <laughs> uh basically yeah. in the twilight zone um I do like it takes a while before we see the image. And uh, I was really noticing, I actually do watch, you know, these are 25 minutes. I actually do watch these several times before you get into oh, yeah. these. And um, the, the there's such a nice, creepy film flicker on, on the two, uh, you know, gasping at what they're seeing. So, yeah. well, and by the way, you know, her uh, housekeeper who uh, comes in a couple of times with the uh, tea service tray, that that is uh, Chekhov's tea service because you see it and you know that it has to fall out of her hands with a scream at some point. Like that, that is just the <laughs> rule. So, uh, but they do it. I mean, that, that's something that I love about the Twilight Zone anyway, is that practically any episode in any scene, you can pull off a beautiful still. Like it, it is so photographic and, it, and it's so evocative moment to moment. And that scene with the flickering light in the dark room, you absolutely have to have. And uh, something I've already, and this is a good twist. This is the 
great one where she's now now on the screen with all her old friends but we, we've made the note in a few episodes already sometimes the twist is like i mean everybody knows it already or you know i mean this one is almost obvious but the fact is it's the rest of the episode that really uh makes the thing stand up that that's something well it, you know again i blame you that uh because you came up with the show idea i i thought well i can't just watch one episode of twilight zone and need to watch them all and uh, you know twilight zone is full of masterpieces but it's also full of episodes where like the point of the episode is the twist and when you've got 25 or 24 minutes to burn until you get to the twist you're just sort of marking time until you get there doesn't mean that it's not a good twist and it doesn't mean that the performers aren't good but sometimes that pacing just feels off it's like something you could almost have just told in a short film like an eight to ten minute short film and in this i i think Partly what makes this episode so powerful is that you can see the twist coming, but we have built up so much of Barbara in our heads, like what her story is, what her state of mind is, where the doors have been shut around her, whether it's by her doing or somebody else's doing. Um, that it, it has sufficiently built up our understanding and our sympathy for her that when we do get to that twist, to me, it doesn't feel like this fatalistic twist that I think the Twilight Zone unfairly gets saddled with a lot. You know, I the more I watch of the Twilight Zone, like, unfortunately, the series name has become the shorthand for something creepy, something dark and fatalistic. And there are those things in the Twilight Zone, often. But there are often moments where, in I feel in an episode like this, it's sort of treating her psyche very gently and just saying like, she may be broken, this may be sort of the world that she has conjured up in her head, but we're just gonna let her have this one. We're gonna let her go. It's all right, because this is where she wants to be, and she'll be okay there. Okay. That actually segues to the uh, questions that I say I like to uh, oh, right <laughs> ask. Uh, cool. Hey, when you're I welcome. Start, <laughs> when, I, when I started, I was like, are these questions too obvious? But the more I ask them, the more I'm like, oh, actually, there the are interesting answers, uh, especially because I think it's obvious, and then someone else has a very different take. So uh, the first one is, who exactly went into or through the Twilight Zone in this episode? Ooh, okay, that is very interesting because I, I think you could look at it and say that people who have the profound kind of like their world shaken would be the two people who work for her, uh, um, uh, Martin Balsam, uh, Mr. Weiss, and then Sally, her, uh, her assistant, you know, or her housekeeper. Like those are the people whose reality is changed <laughs> you know yeah they, that's what i they, thought yeah they they have witnessed the existence now of the twilight zone for barbara this is just the next phase of her life and it doesn't seem to it doesn't seem to have like messed with her at all she she gets the the benefit of this because yeah those the um the housekeeper and the, and the agent i mean they're gonna have to deal with like 
some kind of Hollywood Babylon situation now. <laughs> right. Because yeah, the yeah. starlet has just vanished and they're the yeah, only people well, that have been in the house. <laughs> well, we can't produce a body. <laughs> but, yeah. Um, the second question being, uh, do they deserve their trip into the Twilight Zone? Ooh, okay. Um, that's tough i i think sally is not well developed enough to really make a call sally just from the beginning is kind of creeped out by barbara yeah she's kind of a character uh, caricature just kind of walking through the episode mostly yeah <laughs> an yeah, npc but, but, oh right yeah exactly exactly she's she's literally there to drop the tea service and scream like that that is her job you know uh but mr weiss is a little bit different because he does care so much and and he, he's trying to make good decisions all along um it, to to barbara's benefit um so deserve almost makes it sound like a punishment i think his resignation at the end he's he's almost pleased and relieved you know I, I think it's okay for him. So deserve it, sure, because what he got is okay. It's yeah. weird. It's weird. You know, it changes his reality, but but it's okay. And we, uh, you mentioned Barbara. She's she's fine. It's the next phase of her life. But um, mm -hmm. what happens when the, they turn the projector off? <laughs> oh, well, yeah, I kind of wondered about that as well. And that there is that metaphoric sense that for every great movie star who has been immortalized in film, they live again every time we roll that film They and, and preserved in that place in their life. So um, in the metaphoric sense, what, what Barbara goes through is what every movie star goes through because they may get old and die, but the film preserves them at their best and doing doing their thing entertaining millions of people um so in a sense even if that projector is stopped it's sort of like everything freezes but then the next person to come along and play it they the person who's watching gets to live that experience gets to have the emotional impact of that experience and whether or not barbara quote unquote lives you know, whether she's actually alive in the process is almost besides the point. Yeah. Know? Although, is anyone going to play this one of a kind film again in the in the haunted house? You know, <laughs> well, you know, here's what will happen. You know, uh, 30 years later, it'll get picked up by uh, UCLA and it will get restored and preserved. And then, you know, for years to come classes will watch it and wonder what is this how, how did how did this person end up what wasn't her last movie in 1935 how you know why why does this exist so <laughs> it exists in some way even if the context is different and if every time it gets played back it is her living out that fantasy of being with her friends and having this party in the garden great wonderful let her have it Yes. Uh, the last question, I used to write psychedelic record reviews and, uh, you know, I give it quality rating, but I'd also give it a, a tripometer rating. So I like to, to rate these on the tripometer uh, from a zero to five uh, decimals are fine. Um, so uh, where would you put this episode on the tripometer? 
Ooh, I'm gonna give this one a uh I'm gonna give this one a four and a half. Um because I, I, I feel like it's one of those that is it's trippy and weird, but in the end, you just feel like, at least I do, like, it's all good. They're going to be fine. She's going to be all right. She's She gets to live the life that she wants to live and do it in a glamorous, elegant way, surrounded by glamorous, elegant people. And uh, you're just leaving it for Martin Balsam to pick up the pieces, <laughs> you know? Um, I guess for me, I'm going to have to put a, a solid... Four. Um, okay. But m mostly for the same reasons. I really wanted to put the decimal point of 0.16 on it, of course, but um, yeah. 3.16 is too low. And yeah, I, didn't, yeah. I didn't feel that I could go higher than four. So I'll, I'll just go with the, the actual four for this one. That, that's fair. I, I think I, I'm looking at ranking it high because I'm really just looking at where do we end up. If I'm looking at it as a production, I think, you know, I would deduct points for the idea that, like we were talking about, the, the twist is the twist. And like, that is the point of the episode. But but I, I think they did such an effective job of making us care that, um, you know, I'll, I'll give them the benefit of the doubt, given that higher ranking. <laughs> yeah, as I mentioned before, the real genius of the show is actually the first 22 minutes. Yeah, um, yeah, right. right. I've been I've been going through some other anthology shows, and I, I mentioned before we started recording, I had been watching some of the Ray Bradbury theater, which is really fun to watch. Yeah, but I do find that most of the episodes, at least the ones I've seen thus far, seem to come from the uh, Michael Scott School of Improv, which is <laughs> I've got a gun. <laughs> <You know? laughs> right, right. So uh, it might be a metaphorical gun, but yeah, I've just it is. It, it, I mean. It's fun. They're, those are well made too, but um, yeah. in, well, not like these. But <laughs> <laughs> um, I guess pulling this one into the the pulling the cart into the horse that doesn't make sense. Okay. Uh, anyway, <laughs> tell us about your podcast. <laughs> I'd be happy to. Yeah, you can find me at podcast.roddenberry.com. Over there, I am a co-host and co-producer of Mission Log, Mission Log Live, and I produce the Trek Files and Sci-Fi Five. And there's just so many good shows over there. You know, we recently launched uh, the Orville and Star Trek Prodigy as their own shows. So if you're into Star Trek or just sci-fi in general, there's something to find that everybody will enjoy. So podcast.roddenberry.com. This one is Time Enough Podcast. It's Time Enough Pod on Twitter. Time Enough Podcast on Facebook. This is, uh, I guess you're hearing this, it's December 27th or later. I really hope we're on Apple Podcasts by then, but because uh, I haven't started listening to my own podcast yet, because that's how I listen to podcasts. <laughs> uh, well, fingers crossed. We'll, we'll right, get right. there. Yeah. Well, I do have the benefit that they're also on my hard drive if I really want to. So. <laughs> okay. Well, I hope to see you all in the movie someday, literally.